Hello, my name is Rory O'Connor and I am President of the International Association for Suicide Prevention. I'm delighted to welcome you to our new podcast series called Reach In, Reach Out. We're hoping to encourage safe conversations around suicide and suicide prevention, and we aim to bring together the different aspects of the work that we do, providing a global perspective, but crucially also sharing stories of hope. A fundamental part of our work is engaging with people with lived and living experience of suicide, either through their own personal experiences of suicidality or through loss and grief. This will be a central strand running through the entire podcast series. Given the sensitive nature of the subject matter, it is vital that we all prioritize our well-being. So please practice self-care. I hope that you find that podcast of interest and we really look forward to hearing what you have to think. Thank you. So welcome to the latest episode of Reach In, Reach Out. I'm absolutely delighted that today we've got two fantastic guests. We've got Lifong Chan, and Lifong's from the University of Malaysia, where Lifong works as a psychiatrist, and she'll tell you much more about her role and work that she does in a second. And our second guest is Naiboy Kwasi, and Nai is, is based in the University of Ghana, and we'll be hearing a lot about the work that, that Nai does in, in sort of community psychology and other work beyond that as well. So welcome, both of you. Thank you. Hi, Nori. And Heine, it's great to be here today with both of you. Yeah. yeah. So that's interesting. Thank so you. I'm happy to be here. So we we let's start with a bit of the names because because I've just said Nai and uh, Lifong has said has said Ni for your name. So and we've had a brief discussion just as we before we hit record about actually really interesting what information we can glean from your name. Nai, is it Ni or Nai? Which was preferable? It, 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 is me. So, so me, tell us about your... Yes. Okay. So first of all, I'm I'm Ghanaian by by birth and you know everything generally. Now, when you are in Ghana and you mention me boy, first of all, me will take you to the southern part of Ghana and it will take you to a specific ethnic group called the Gam, G A, Gam. Then when you add the boy, it becomes knee boy. Now, knee boy will bring you to my specific community within the Ga ethnic group. Then it will further take you to my family. So my family is big, but me will further help you locate me. Knee boy will further help you locate me by telling you my birth position among my siblings. So a boy is male and is supposed to be the sick boy. So it means that there are five males ahead of me. Yeah. So basically, yes. And, And it also means, actually the name boy also, that refers to a kind of a tree. And I think if I can give, I don't know the exact, um, if you like, scientific name of the tree, but I know it is that tree which is used in making 
most musical instrument, for example, the guitar and other such musical instruments. Mm. That's the that, that tree help. Um, it is out of that tree that we get the wood in in, in preparing or making such uh, musical instruments. My understanding from my own dad is that that tree is quite resistant. It is strong. It can stand um, harsh weather conditions and so on. So basically, yeah. thinking about this, um, it all fuses into who I am. Uh, a bit of my personality as well. So this is Nayboy. Thank you. <laughs> well, that's really, I'm great. Because I have an interesting story about my phone as well. But 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 because um, it's much better than my name. Rory O'Connor is so Rory in in Irish means um, means red king. So and, or red haired, and I clearly have never had red hair. I dark hair before it all went grey. <laughs> and um, but Rory O'Connor, interestingly, was the last High King of Ireland. So that's oh, that's my yeah. claim to fame. But the, on the downside, most Rory O'Connors in history have ended their lives. Have, have so Rory O'Connor, the last High King of Ireland, I think he was beheaded. And then there's a, a Rory O'Connor in Irish in the Irish Civil War in the 1920s, and he was shot dead by a firing squad. So I'm hoping against all hope that I don't meet either of those end outcomes. But, but <laughs> moving on then, moving on, uh, Lifong. So obviously when I first came across you, Lifong, um, so I was confused because I wasn't certain whether Lifong was your, your given name or Chan was your given name. So in the same way that Ni had. So tell us a bit about your, in Malaysia, the naming scenario sure rory yeah so i go by lifong which is my given name and chan is my family name surname or in the west the last name so um i sometimes get a little bit confused how i should introduce myself um and i usually go by lifong chan when I am in an international audience to save me the trouble of explaining how my name works. So I'm Malaysian um, by nationality. I was born in Malaysia, but my paternal great-grandfather came from China. So yeah. I am Chinese of Chinese heritage. And Chan is our family name and the um, state or province is from Canton, but uh, kind of like a, a smaller place within Canton is this place called Toy San, and that's my dialect, uh, my father's dialect. But my mom is another dialect, so that's another whole story. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah, that's my name in a nutshell. But I mean, that's it's fascinating. I think it really illustrates the importance of, um, I suppose, one of the reasons why we're focusing today on low and middle income countries is that recognition that we that that as we all know sadly still sadly most research most suicide prevention activities are focused on high income countries and we we've spent too long trying to assume that we can just transport knowledge only in one direction from high income to low middle income or from high income to low middle income countries without recognizing the complexity the culture the history and obviously one of the the really positive developments in recent years has been that recognition that we can learn from each other, but we're all different and that we have to embrace that difference and suicide prevention needs to continue to embrace that difference. So maybe just before we get into the 
sort of the, the nitty gritty, so to speak, of uh, of suicide prevention globally. Um, Lifelong, just staying with yourself, can you tell us a bit about your background in terms of what you do? I also know you, obviously, in your role as uh, Vice President of YASP as well, but tell us a bit about your work in suicide prevention, then we'll go back to you, Nee, then after Lifelong. Yeah, so I am a practicing clinical psychiatrist. Um, uh, I'm also an academician in terms of uh, being an educator as well as a researcher in psychiatry. And my special interest uh, is in uh, particularly suicide prevention. Um, I would also like to identify as a person with lived experience of suicidal behavior, both um, on a professional level as well as a personal level. And um, uh, it's it's in the last, I guess, one or two years that uh, I... Um, and beginning to feel comfortable about sharing this piece of myself. Um, but I believe uh, and I think the evidence also informs us that lived experience is a very powerful tool for advocacy in suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. No, thanks for sharing that. I, I didn't know that aspect um, <clears throat> lifelong. And and so the the the... the Work that you've been doing, and or, or in terms of the, you're saying only till recently you felt comfortable sharing that experience. So, so what? Can you tell us a bit about your journey into why, what, how you then felt comfortable doing so, or why? Yeah. So I think um, I've shared this anecdote in a couple of um, audiences, but I think um, in terms of um, professionally, my work. Um, So there is this saying that goes that um, if you haven't had a client or a patient who has died by suicide, um, that means that you haven't seen enough patients. So when that, with good intentions, uh, been shared to me as something that I know intellectually as something to comfort me in my own experience of losing a client to suicide, um, viscerally, I felt that it was a punch in the gut. And so from then, um, I wasn't sure how to cope, basically, um, with that whole experience. And when I started to reach out and to share, in particular with uh, this zero suicide movement, um, I... I guess my eyes and my ears were open and that, you know, it was clear that I am not alone and that there's a whole community of us out there. And um, I think step by step, I began to grow and would like to think that um, I'm still on the journey of post-traumatic growth. Yeah. No, no, thanks for that. No, I think it's important to, to share these messages and, as you say, help others and feel less alone who've been, who work in the field or experience the same things that you've experienced and others. So, no, thanks for that, Lifelong. So, moving back, Nita, to yourself, and tell us a bit about your about the work you've been doing and your sort of your journey thus far in suicide prevention. Yeah, thank you very much, Rory. Um, so, like you intimated in the brief introduction, I'm with the Department of Psychology at the University of Ghana. Um, here as um, an academic staff. So basically what I do 
is two pronged. One is that um, um, I'm a lecturer, um, teach undergraduates, and I take some um, postgraduate courses as well. Um, of course, supervise um, student research, and I'm also required to conduct research um, for my um, professional growth and, and all of that. But um, my my research requirement is not uh, for me is not because that's what the university wants from an academic. It's because I'm passionate about what um, I'm doing, and in terms of research, the focus is more on um, adolescent self-harm and generally um, child and adolescent mental health in, in low and middle income countries. But I feel, um, yes, low and middle income countries can be very broad. And mm -hmm. I think that it's always good to start from home. So Ghana, my first step, and then um, widely within the sub-Saharan African context. Um, so in terms of what, for example, drove me into this field, um, originally, um, I was interested in just um, children and young people in particularly difficult circumstances. And by this, I mean um, adolescents, especially who are homeless. And in our context, it can be very different from what we know from the Western context. When an adolescent is homeless, for example, in Ghana, what it means is that uh, not only do they sleep rough in the street, but their everyday life is within the street. No adult supervision, no school. What they will eat, where they will sleep is none. Um, it's nobody's business. They are their own father, they are their own mother and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. So they were my focus. How can I work with the Department of Social Welfare to help improve the situation of these young people? Um, but over time, I got to, I got introduced into suicide research um and i thought i mean like any other person in our context at the first hearing of the word suicide it just puts you off it's something you don't want to hear about in my context it's a taboo you don't even have to mention it in everyday conversation but i was surprised that um the senior colleagues who got me in there, and, I, and, and I'm happy to mention Professor Joseph Osafo and Professor Charity Akutia. These two people are with the um, IAPS uh, regional um, coordination teams for Africa. So we, I assisted with uh, data collection projects. Um, uh, they require that I help with uh, literature review and some write-ups and data analysis. I was shocked at what I was seeing among young people. Then I told myself, oh, I'm going to change the world of adolescence. Mm -hmm. And I was that ambitious about it. Um, but over the years, what I have learned is that definitely I cannot change the world. <laughs> but even though I can change the world of adolescence, recently it has just occurred to me that the little step I take can change the entire world of an adolescent. I may not change yeah. the bigger world around me, but I can change the small world of that innocent uh, young person. So um, it has been um, a useful and fruitful journey. Um, I have not, uh, so far, I've just, um, uh, I don't know whether it is good or bad to say it. Um, I've, I've also had the experience of losing, um, not a client, but a research participant. Mm -hmm. and also an advocacy uh, events we conducted and 
um, someone who participated in it lost their life a few days after the events. And it, it, it got us back to think that uh, these advocacy programs we, we are running, are we really doing the right thing and so on? And so um, the journey has been interesting. Uh, there's been a lot of up and downs, emotional involvements, and and uh, moments when uh, we break down. Uh, personally, I've shed tears, you know, because of the experiences that young people shared with me um, um, as uh, factors moving them to engage in suicidal behaviors. Um, yeah. So uh, basically, this 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 is my story. And Good. The, the story so far. The story so far. The obviously, as there's still a young, a young person. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but no. But uh, yeah, but again, I right. appreciate you. <laughs> but I appreciate again, like like Fong sharing, and I, I think it's so important that we share our own personal experiences and recognize that although we might be researchers or clinicians, um, that we all bring our own experiences and our own um, stories with us. And I think that's, I think, been another really positive development in the field of suicide prevention. More of us are talking about our own personal experiences. And I did it last year in a book I wrote, talked about my own experiences of bereavement by suicide. Um, but before I move back to Lai Fong, just a quick question, um, Nee, on criminalization of suicide and suicidal behavior in Ghana. My memory yeah. is it was the 1960 Suicide Act. Is that where, where, where? Is that has that been repealed, or what's the status of suicide and criminalization in Ghana? Yeah, thank you. I think this is an important question, and I'm really happy to talk about it because a few weeks ago, uh, life on. I don't know whether I'm right with my dates. Um, we had the EAPS um, webinar uh, with the sorry. International Academy so, for Suicide Research. Exactly. I had to talk about our progress uh, so far in Ghana. So it's uh, Ghana's anti-suicide law uh, was decreed to us through uh, British colonial rule. And we have always seen that the, the paradox is funny because by 1961, the, uh, the, the British had repealed that law, but Ghana has kept that law since 1960. Um, thankfully, um, in 2008, we started some research to help build local evidence to push for the repeal of the law. We made the first attempt in 2012 by submitting um, a petition that contained uh, evidence at that point, and it wasn't sufficient enough. We were not able to convince a good number of our parliamentarians to look into the issue at all. So we went back to our field. We started targeting key stakeholders, so the police, judges, and lawyers. Um, and judges were looking at those in the superior courts. We started also focusing on community leaders who are very um, vocal and um, very influential when it comes to uh, issues of the law in, in our country. And eventually we um, got the views and attitudes of, as well of, of um, teachers who are handling issues of our adolescents and young people, uh, and ultimately MPs or members of parliament. And then we put together a new version of our petition which we submitted 
again to the Parliament of Ghana. As I speak, um, where we've got into is the state where Parliament has, for the first time, listened to our uh, or the content of our petition, and they've considered it. They've actually formally invited us to interact with the Select Committee of Parliament on Health issues. And so at the moment, they've, they've recommended that the, the bill be properly drafted, and then it will be tabled before Parliament for the first reading. And in terms of our parliamentary process, whether you want to formulate a new law or repeal one, the processes are the same or similar. So there will be a first reading, a second and a third reading. If at all three stages you are successful, it is given a presidential accent and you are gone and it is successful. So um, we are looking forward to uh, the, the not too distant uh, future when we receive the next call from mm -hmm. the Parliamentary Select Committee on Health to um, let us know that um, the, the bill is going to be tabled before Parliament for the first reading. And I'm sure that myself and many of my colleagues will be the first to jump and start making noise about this and keep, um, um, you know, lobbying and keep getting more support to push yep. this through the second and third stages. And we hope that it will be uh, a big breakthrough for us because once this is done, we can get government to commit to improving our mental health infrastructure and investing into uh, the, the sector and also uh, considering the formulation of national suicide prevention plans and strategies and actually investing into that whole big area. Because um, now with the law in place, with the anti-suicide law in place, uh, Ghana, I mean, government is 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 not empowered. Government cannot uh, support any any um, effort towards suicide prevention because the law and such effort by government cannot coexist. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you you conflict the government. Government will be conflicting the law itself, and that cannot be. So, getting the law out of the way is our biggest thing and most fundamental thing we need to do. Then we can get the support we need. Uh, towards suicide prevention in uh, at a more national level. Great. No, well, I mean, all the very best with that. And, and obviously, on behalf of YASP, I know, um, I mean, really um, thanks for the advocacy work that you've been personally doing as well, uh, together with your colleagues. So, our, all our thoughts and whatever powers of yeah. persuasion, hopefully, with you, and, and as, as it hopefully goes through the three readings and and there's a change happens. Um, so moving back to you then, Lifelong, actually maybe because I'm going to ask you two things, Lifelong, just to give you advance warning. We we're going to ask you to say something a bit about Malaysia and the status of Malaysia, because I think my, again, my quick reading of history was 1940, there was a penal code, I think, around suicide and suicide attempts. Um, but I think, but my understanding is that there was a change, I think, a couple of years ago or last year, I think. But it'd be great then, Lifelong, if you can update us on, on that. And then I'm going to maybe move us into a broader discussion about sort of risk factors and protective factors in, uh, for suicide in low and middle income countries. So, so do you want to take the first part of that question, um, Lai Fong, in terms of what the status is in terms of criminalization in Malaysia? Sure, Rory. So um, the sort of like summary of um, the progress that we've made is that um, 
the, the major stakeholders in government, especially um, um, the Ministry of Health, is extremely invested in decriminalization of suicide attempts. So um, on paper, the actual repeal of the penal code um, has not occurred. Um, uh, we're kind of um, uh, in some ways, in some ways, pretty similar to the situation when me has described in Ghana, uh, in terms of um, that's a whole lot of advocacy already. There's a lot of awareness. Uh, it's a matter of putting it down on paper, getting it through parliament and repealing the law. However, I, I would like to kind of add, um, without diminishing the importance of actually the legal aspect of decriminalization, because I completely agree with me, uh, there's a huge conflict. Um, so I've just come back from um, a training, a local training, a national level local training with first responders, with the Ministry of Health, uh, together with my colleagues um, um, from the health sector, um, um, training of um, suicide prevention, advocacy and awareness, um, um, with law enforcers, the police, as well as um, the firemen, because they are the very, very important um, first responders who respond to people who are in acute suicidal crisis uh, and rescue them. So um, I think it's a kind of like a no-brainer that someone in acute suicidal crisis needs help. Um, yeah. Basically, everyone knows that. Uh, but the conflict is when there is still a penal code that criminalizes suicide attempt as a punishable offense. Then we, uh, then the law enforcers are in a bind. On one hand, um, part of our Mental Health Act does give the mandate to our law enforcers to facilitate and bring people who are in acute suicidal crisis to health services for help that they very much need. But on the other hand, there is this penal code that says that it's a chargeable offence. So here yeah. we put the law enforcers in a bind and they feel compelled to still follow the law. And so they're really stuck. So until and unless um, the penal code is repealed, um, things just get messy, things just get difficult. It's a matter yeah. of time for it to you know, get through parliament and actually, you know, as uh, me has um, outlined the process, but it has to be done. Yeah, well, okay. And so, what, have you any sense of the timeline when that might happen in reality? Is it? Are you talking months or years or? Yeah. So that's that's a really tricky question, Rory, <laughs> because um, I think um, really, um, I guess um, the political will is a very important factor here. So, yeah. um, so the media has reported that you know this particular motion to um, discuss and repeal this penal code at the parliamentary level. Um, this has been splashed all over the media last year. Um, and it's supposed to have been happened in the middle of this year. And now we are going into the third quarter of this year. So time will tell much yeah. lobbying and advocacy to be done. But, but but great great progress being made. So let's I mean so fingers crossed. The next time I see you, there'll be more more progress at our uh, in our subsequent board meetings, and um, look forward to hearing uh, as it develops. And um, so can we maybe widen the discussion now a bit? Stick staying with yourself, Lifelong, in terms of um, 
the risk and protective factors in low middle income countries. Now, of course, I totally understand and hopefully our listeners will understand it. Like in high income countries, there are unique characteristics within across countries and within countries. But maybe can you say, if I ask you, if I, if I sort of, um, someone who didn't know much about suicide prevention and they wanted to know more about what was going on in terms of the risk and protective factors in this broad brush way with in low and middle income countries, what would you say are the key factors lifelong? And so let's start, start with risk factors um, that maybe are distinct from perhaps high income countries. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, maybe just a bit of a dial back, um, just to reference what Ni has mentioned. So the the way we kind of the language that we use in categorizing high income countries and low income countries um, um, has its utility, but we also have to approach it with caution that we do not uh, are we are not too reductionist because yeah. there is a huge heterogeneity. Uh, in terms of what the World Bank designates and categorizes as low and middle income countries. So we don't have to go into the specifics there, but the key sort of like uh, indicator is income. Yeah. But, but so coming back to your question, um, Rory, um, the, the biggest risk factor that has been sort of like well-recognized, well-researched, in high income countries and more so-called Western centric countries is um, um, the sort of like presence of a mental health disorder or a diagnosis or a psychiatric diagnosis. So we talk about, you know, things like psychological autopsies that show 80 to 90% of people who die by suicide have a diagnosable um, psychiatric disorder diagnosis. But we have to be very cognizant of the fact that the models that we base this diagnosis are, again, very, very Western-centric. Um, in particular, more um, um, North American-centric and more European-centric. So, um, so, so I'm going to reference one of um, 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 our colleagues, uh, Dean Ipe and colleagues, yep. a recent systematic review that specifically looked at low and middle income countries, the systematic review and meta-analysis, um, and the association between psychiatric morbidity and suicidal behavior. So the difference between our LMICs, the low middle income countries versus the high income countries, the percentage of those who died by suicide is a smaller percentage, um, an average of 58%, still more, still considered like the majority, but a much smaller majority compared to 80 to 90%. And for those who have engaged in non-fatal suicidal behavior, the percentage is slightly less, 45%. Mm. So what does this tell us? Because as you mentioned, we, we, we're not, we, we, we need to know risk factors so that we know how to intervene and prevent suicide and self-harm. So it's a no-brainer again that if the majority of the, you know, the majority risk factor is a treatable psychiatric diagnosis. Let's go treat it. But again, you know, there's so many ways of looking at the um, findings of the systematic review. So what does this mean? Does it mean that psychiatric disorders don't play such a prominent role? 
or does it mean that the way that we define um, a mental health crisis may not be the same as how we define it in a high-income country setting? So there authors and scholars who mentioned that before we even get to that nitty-gritty, we need to understand how we define and express distress, mental health distress in low and middle income countries before we even talk about how do we heal in these communities. Yeah, so, great. No, that, <clears throat> sorry, no, sorry to come in there. Um, look, I think it's a really important point is um, I, what do we mean by distress um, and what do we mean by suicidal distress across different populations and countries and, and um, cultures? So, so is there a working group or is there work trying to do that, though, Lifeong? Because I'm not aware of any, because we, we've had working groups, for example, trying to define what we mean by non-suicidal self-harm versus suicide attempts. And we've working groups on, of course, decriminalization. Well, have we anything? I'm just, I'm, I, and I don't know the answer, so that's why I'm asking. Are, internationally, is there any, are we, have we tried to understand that? That's a really good question, and I'm sure Ni could, you know, chip in as well. Um, to the best of my knowledge, um, I'm not aware of at least an international concerted effort mm. to really define what distress is. Because in the first place, what is the common language that we're speaking? And if we're talking about English, then where does that leave? non-English speaking communities? How do we even yeah. define what distress is? And I, this brings to my memory um, when um, the Asia Pacific EASP Congress was held in New Zealand in 2018. And we were having conversations um, with um, the um, sort of um, local communities um, and I and I, I really hope that I am not misrepresenting um, the conversations that we're having, but to, but from my understanding, um, in the local Maori language, there does not seem to be the um, a, a term that is exactly equivalent to suicide. So then, so so how do we talk about suicide in communities? That don't have a name for suicide. So that, no, that's absolutely, and it's so. But it's interesting because it's so fundamental. Um, that it, it's a surprise we haven't. Now, having said that, I'm involved in a, a Lancet Commission on Self Harm, and we've got a whole chapter on um, suicide in Indigenous communities, and we've also got a chapter in low and middle income um, countries as well. And we're trying to grapple with some of these issues. But I think, but just more broadly, it just struck me that that is something maybe as an organization, we can maybe bring back to our board <laughs> lifelong and say, actually, this might be something we need to do some more work on. Um, okay, so then, so so yeah, we definitely got that issue about the, the, the history of mental health problems or mental illness, what we mean by that as well, and how that's defined and diagnosed in different countries. Nick, do, do you want to add to what lifelong has said in terms of other Key, key risk factors or protective factors that are, are distinctive in low and middle income settings? Yes, um, thank you very much, Rory. And I, I'd like to uh, start off from where Lifon um, left uh, by saying that uh, 
if you look carefully at, for example, the studies that are coming from um, Africa, uh, particularly West Africa, um, one of the things I've been sharing with my colleagues in our region here is that it's good we try to do all the intervention studies and everything, but can we start from the basics? Because I have always been troubled by terminologies that are used in, in suicide research. And I think, uh, like Fon said it right when she said, look, there are, there are certain cultures in which you don't even have a term for suicide. In my language, we don't really have terms for emotional experiences. So somebody is experiencing depression and we don't have a simple way to say it. The best a person would do is to describe what they are going through. Mm -hmm. using various um, expressions and descriptors. But to have a simple word or, you know, all-encompassing descriptor, we don't have that in our language. And, and that is similar to many of the languages spoken in, in my country, Ghana. Now, you take the term suicide, for example, and you ask people in, from, from various um, ethnic groups, and they will, they will mention terms that will connote um, method of suicide instead of, you know, giving you a sense of the, the behavior itself in general. So these are very basic things I feel that we need to crack before we get on with um, our, our whole research enterprise in the area. Now, um, to add to the risk factors, uh, one of the things we have seen, uh, particularly from, from the Africa region, I mean, mainly sub-Saharan Africa, has been um, existential problems. Yes, the issues about psychiatric uh, diagnosis, you know, mental health disorders and all of that are there, but they are not that pronounced related to the existential issues. People are struggling with daily bread. People are struggling with, um, I mean, everyday survival issues. And so um, you can typically among men, um, one of my colleagues who focuses on, on suicide among men will tell you that you, um, you meet a man who has attempted suicide and in his narrative, he will say, so um, I have been embarrassed because I don't have job. I can't take care of my family. It is, life is not worth living. Um, it is better I die than be dishonored as a man and so yes there can be some psychiatric issues but mainly mainly it being it being um, existential issues i i would like to hesitate to also mention um religion because recently we yeah. are beginning to see it more um constantly uh, originally uh, i remember somewhere in 20, 2008 uh, through to 2000 and 15 thereabouts, in our studies, we were constantly finding um, religion to be relatively more protective than, as, I mean, than presenting as a risk factor. But more recently, we are beginning to see in our research uh, the issue of religious and spiritual struggles, where people, uh, for example, Ghana is predominantly Christian, and so people go to church uh, church leaders uh, give them prophecies of prosperity in the near future, 
uh, that all their crisis will be over and and heaven will smile on them and life will be all fine. Now they stand, you're able to uh, keep up their faith and time passes, the years go by and nothing happens. In fact, some of them, their situation gets worse. And so they begin to question whether God exists really. They begin to question their own faith and their religious beliefs and so on. So at the end, many of them um, begin to think about giving up entirely, not just on their religious beliefs, but also um, um, resorting to suicide. And so it is one area uh, that is beginning to speak to us in the data. And recently we have, we have mapped that out as another area we want to explore some more mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. um, there, there's this kind of um, religious liberation happening, you know, where people uh, are beginning to lose um, faith. They are beginning to throw away their religious beliefs and, and, and things like that. And we feel it, it, it's becoming a problem. Now, another yeah. important thing i like to talk about is related to the, the, the statistics we have in terms of age. So we are seeing that young people, uh, or suicide is more pronounced in young people relative to um, older ones. And among the young people, certain risk factors that we have constantly seen from 2012 to date, which um, from my understanding of the global literature are not pronounced in the Western literature. For example, um, in Ghana, you have academic stress where young people are resorting to suicidal behavior because they have failed their um, exams or are having school uh, work problems. Now, the understanding we have in our context is that parents and families see child education or taking their children to school as a form of social insurance. Now, typically yeah. people are not in the middle class. Uh, most people are below that level of the economic um, structure. And so when you take your child to school and they do well in school, the expectation is that in their future, they get a better job. And as a parent, your child who is now an adult will come and take care of you. So that is a strong social insurance most Ghanaian families don't joke with. And so if a child is in school, they also have that understanding that my parents are looking up to me to take care of them when I'm old and when they are older. Now, once failure starts coming in or you are underperforming at school, it becomes a problem because your parents will be angry at you and you cannot also find any explanation for them. And so many of these young people resort to um, such um, um, suicidal acts. So just, just to commend, just, one, one second, just to come in there, Nick, because that's a really interesting point. Because I think you started by saying that um, so the, the role of academic stress um, maybe is more pronounced in, in the, you're saying, in the context of, of Ghana. Because yeah. I, I wonder whether, because if we look at youth suicide in say in the UK um, or in other Western countries, I think there is some evidence that implicated for certainly a percentage of young people and that academic stress and failure. But I think if I understand correctly, what you're saying is I think the role or function is different because so if yeah. so there's so much invested in the in the offspring 
to be to continue to provide for the parents or and support them as they get older because they'll they'll rise up or do better in in the economic ladder, so to speak. Is that, is that have I understood that correctly? Yes. So, yeah. uh, so you have usually you have parents who are not well to do economically, yep. and so some can go to the extent of selling landed properties just to pay the fees of um, their, their ward in school. And, and the, the trouble, particularly for those who are first in their family to enter university is also beginning to emerge in our data where okay. you have this young person and among his siblings and sometimes the entire nuclear extended family, he or she is the first to enter university. For, yeah. for young people like that, the pressure is huge because the expectation yeah. is that once you are out of university, you are coming to take care of everybody else, including your younger yeah. siblings. And so even though you are young, you have been made a parent at your stage or you have been um, um, made what uh, some authors called, um, um, you've, become, you've been parentified or you have achieved what they call um, early mm -hmm. adultification. So you go through school and quickly you're expected to come and pay back. And so whilst in school, if you are having struggles with academic performance, it can be a challenge. And so it's because yeah. of that thinking and, and that orientation. Okay, yeah. great. No, no, that's really helpful now. Andy, sorry. And just because I'm just conscious of our time we have together here, I'm going to try and squeeze in a couple of, of other questions before we, we right. sort of bring this to a close um, as we try and keep it a roughly sometimes around 45-ish minutes to apparently that's the optimal length of a podcast, yeah. somebody said. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Lifeong, go back to you for a second. Um, so the two things I want to cover before we finish really are the sort of data and evidence stuff and then interventions of what works. So Lifeong, so can you maybe say a bit about um, what we think we know about the gaps in knowledge? So uh, for example, I know Africa, there are huge gaps in terms of recording suicides and suicide attempts. But uh, Lifeong, do you want to comment a bit about that on sort of global context? Yeah, sure, Rory. So I think um, Jane Perkis's um, very recent um, systematic review tried to summarize global data looking at um, pre and post pandemic uh, kind of suicide rates. And I think the narrative is that um, there's no significant increase in suicide rates, um, uh, maybe sometimes even decline. Uh, but they are, uh, but but we still need to be very vigilant because um, there is a huge lack of data, specifically from low, low and middle income countries. And so this is where the huge gap is um, in terms of very high quality, rigorous, systematic data. Speaking from a local context in Malaysia, we have had a National Suicide Registry 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but since then, um, the sustainability of such a national registry has been fraught with challenges. So now there is a new initiative and hopefully if things go well and according to plans, um, in a, a year or two, we will have not only a national suicide registry, but um, also of um, a, a violent deaths. So uh, whether it's suicide or non-suicide, but violent deaths. So then uh, we will have much better quality data. So because obviously without proper data, we will not be able 
to understand and evaluate interventions, what works and not work. But of course, all the caveats surrounding once you have a better reporting system, then it's you know going to be tough to kind of like compare his, with historical data because then the quality of reporting is not the same. You might actually see an increase in reported mm-hmm. suicides because of the higher quality and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, uh, that should obviously not stop us from having a better system, a better surveillance systems um, in place. Um, having said yeah. that, I'd like to just um, kind of like point out that um, though there are kind of like distinct uniqueness in uh, Lamic settings, um, the point that Ni has brought up about um, academic stresses, I think um, are not totally unique to say Lamic countries as well. And I just want to reference a qualitative paper done, done by, uh, published by Anna Mueller, um, uh, which, you know, sample size of 100 over, which is a really good sample size for qualitative case studies. And this was done in um, um, American community where academic achievement is highly prized. So I think rather than kind of say um, the academic stresses are or not um, significant uh, in this suicide or self-harm behavior of uh, 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 young people in Lamic and high-income countries, we always have to contextualize it. The meaning of the social capital of academic progress, um, you know, in terms of, you know, progressing in society, the meaning of that. So in the low middle income countries, the the young person can be the first to enter university. But in a, say, a very elite Western centric high income uh, or even Asian high income kind of country, um, it it wouldn't be so far-fetched to say the um, um, pressure to excel academically um, is also there. It can be a significant stressor, um, even though um, that person may not be the first to enter university. But maybe the long line, in a long line of um, uh, people who enter elite universities. So if they kind of fail, that is a huge stressor as well. But then we look again in uh, at society, contextualize again, high income, low income, uh, whatever it may be, it's uh, f- uh, to me. It's not just the income status of the country, but the context of the community that you are coming from. What it means to lead a meaningful and successful life. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think that's a, a point really, really well made. Is again, it's, w- what this illustrates is the heterogeneity, as I've been mentioned already. Uh, you mentioned already life form within countries, but also within structures and rural communities versus urban communities and i mean absolutely so 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 important that we we do that and all the work i suppose that we all try to do in suicide prevention is to recognize that complexity and contextualize it better because we've been for too long been too individualistic and it's recognizing the individual in their context and it's good you mentioned anna Mueller's work in in the, in the u.s because she does as a sociologist, she's really trying to yeah. ensure that we do take that that broader focus. Okay, so I want to just if you just one I have one last substantive question and then one reflective question for both of you at the end. But maybe so um so Nee, if you maybe kick off this the last substantive question, which is about intervention. So what what have we learned from research and practice and in, in, in terms of uh, suicide prevention and Low and middle income countries about what works to prevent suicide. Thank you, Rory. Um, I think so far 
Well, from where I sit, it's quite difficult to point to a particular um, intervention that is uh, working in low and middle income countries, even though um, we've seen a lot in, in high income countries and there, there this strong recommendation that uh, perhaps um, practitioners in low and middle income countries should consider um, adapting these um, strategies that I've worked in, in some um, um, high income countries. Um, but I also can imagine that uh, for, for more collectivistic context um, in low and middle income countries where uh, people are more communal than individualistic, maybe community-based uh, interventions will, will do more than uh, the, the strict in uh, the strict psychological fashioned uh, mm -hmm. sort of interventions. Um, I, I was just, I was, I wanted to add to the issue about data that um, in, 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 in setting up data collection system or surveillance system for many low and, in, um, low and middle income countries where you have um, Islamic cultures, it will be important to consider setting up the surveillance system, not just for clinics, but also for community-based, because there are times people can die within the community by suicide, and that data will never get to the uh, official records. Now, if this is the situation, then if we are setting up interventions within only um, the clinical context, we may have problems because um, we the, the the coverage or the reach of such interventions will be so limited but if we can think about interventions that are um, community based that will involve people that will engage people at the community level uh, families and 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 so on my my hope is that we'll begin to see some some positive light in terms of um, suicide reduction yeah. 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 No, I think that's, that's that's my thinking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no, that's I think that's really important and helpful. No, thanks for Lifon. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about the interesting work going on about the cash transfers, the conditional cash transfers work being conducted in Brazil, and maybe some of the work also being conducted looking at pesticides and ensuring that we can obviously restrict access to means in, in those regards. Yeah, uh, thanks, uh, Rory, for the question. So there has been some interesting work by Diane Machado and her team in Brazil that shows that interventions such as cash transfers at the population level uh, seems to be associated with a significant reduction of suicide rates. Um, so that seems promising in terms of um, uh, you know improving improving and increasing the protective factor, financially speaking. So the other interesting thing uh, that is uh, in the context of uh, Lamic countries is the area of pesticide suicide prevention. Um, so we know, generally speaking, um, that restricting access to lethal means is one of the most evidence-based suicide prevention measures globally. So particular to uh, Lamic countries where pesticide uh, suicide deaths are um, significant uh, play a significant role in terms of uh, what works best to prevent pesticide suicide deaths. 
it looks like policies uh, where there are actual bans on highly hazardous uh, pesticides seem to be the most, the, the strongest evidence there is. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. No, I think it's really important to highlight both of those examples, Lai Fong, and, and obviously given the case for fatality rates with pesticides, we just need to have the most effective Meth- methods of obviously saving people's lives in that regard as possible. And, and interestingly, also, when we think about the conditional cash transfers work, I think it'd be really great to see that expanded beyond, because I'm only aware of it being done in a large scale way in Brazil, but looking at how we in high income countries can really learn from these innovations. And I think that's really, really important. So thanks for that. No, that's great. So really important to get that message, those two messages out there. So thanks for that, a million for that lifelong. You're welcome, Rory. Thanks so much. But I think what's more interesting space to watch is what we intuitively feel should work, but we don't have the published evidence. So, I mean, it, I think it's so clear that the macro uh, factors such as, you know, we got to target socioeconomic inequality, uh, unemployment, Poverty, that's a no-brainer again, um, as well as um, everywhere in the world, means restriction is the number one prevention. But that's kind of at the macro level. But again, as what Ni has alluded to, what's going to work for an individual in crisis, in the critical stage, the recovery stage, what's actually going to help a particular individual in a low low and middle income country setting, uh, whether it's within psychiatric services community-based mental health services, or within their own community structures, which may or may not involve community leaders, be Mm -hmm. it teachers, be it religious leaders, with all the caveats around religion. Um, And and I completely agree with the point that Ni has brought up. You know, evidence, we we keep seeing evidence uh, showing that religion is protective against suicide. But I think we need to look at it at a more nuanced approach. especially young people, the um, I think the systematic the, the recent systematic review show that religion may not uh, show such a protective effect, particularly in young people, before all the reasons that Ni has mentioned. But so is it just religion or the way religious concepts are communicated? Is it in a judgmental manner? Is it in um, sort of like um, 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 hopeful manner? So many things surrounding this complicated um, issue of the association between religion and suicide prevention. So a lot no, of watching that space. Yeah, and 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 again, it, it highlights the importance of um, the nuance and how, how religion, the role of religion, plays out differently, and obviously different parts of the world as well. Okay, so thanks, both of you. Can I just be um, going to give you a chance to see if there's anything crucial that you'd hope to have covered, but then I'm going to ask you this sort of last sort of question about what lesson, what have you, what's the most important lesson you've learned in life type question. So, but before we do that, and I can see both my guests are smiling at <laughs> thought of that question, but are there any, any other issues you would like to talk about briefly before we bring it to an end that we haven't covered thus far or in this podcast. Yeah, Robbie. Yeah, absolutely. Just quick ones. I think um, the issue of gender 
and um, marital status are really important things to think about uh, when we're talking about comparing high income and low income, whether it's a risk and whether it's a, protect, a protective factor. So, um, I mean, globally, um, we know for a fact that suicide rates among males are higher than in females. And, you know, uh, again, um, you know, uh, at the risk of being reductionist, uh, we have this kind of like um, binary classification of gender, uh, which if we had more time, we should expand that. Um, yeah. But it's just the interest of time. Um, so we know that evidence has shown that in places like China and India, the uh, male-female suicide ratio is narrowed or sometimes even reversed, right? So there's yeah. a huge space that we need to talk about in terms of gender equality or inequality, um, the existence and the lack of it, um, whether it's in a high-income country, whether it's a Western Asian-centric, um, you know, just look at the data from Japan pre and post-demic. There's such a huge story to, to tell there surrounding gender, mm -hmm. as well as whether, um, uh, you know, marriage is a protective factor or not. Mm -hmm. In the overall general view globally is, yes, marriage is a protective factor, but there are studies specifically in Sri Lanka. If we look at, um, say, uh, self-harm, yeah, fatal and non-fatal, if you look at married as the reference point, being single is actually protective against self-harm, but the divorced and separated uh, category is still a risk factor for self-harm. Mm -hmm. So there's so much diversity there. And so we just can't um, lock, stock, barrel, say marriage is protective factor, full stop. There's so much there. Yeah, well, absolutely. And just I, I'm going to give Nia a chance to come in. But I remember yeah. even in a high-income context, when I did my first study of my PhD in the 1990s, the key finding there was marriage is protective for men, but it's a risk factor for women. And then, and then you're right. If you bring in the wider, the so I think, um, and that was only in one context or one country context. If we look at that then, obviously internationally, of course, it's really, really complicated. So, no thanks for for raising those points, Lifong. Ni, nee, are you looking to come in with one last point before we do our wrap up question? Yes, um, I want you to say quickly that. Um, yeah, we all agree that we are not in normal times. Um, in fact, I think things are getting worse than it used to be during the days and years of COVID. And in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, um, countries are going through harsh economic moments and it looks like families and so on are getting uh, disintegrated. There are real problems uh, economically. And I think that we should keep um, being observance as, as um, professionals. But I think the most important thing is to keep expanding our collaborations. My worry has been that it looks like um, psychiatrists, psychologists, all the you know so-called professional mental health people appear to exercise some territoriality. And I think that wouldn't help us in, in most low and middle income countries, because when it comes to delivering healthcare and, and the helping sort of profession, you have other people at the local level. So, for example, you have herbalists, you have traditional healers, you have our faith healers, you have religious leaders and so on. I believe that the time to begin extending our collaborations 
with, with, with these other um, people because take it or leave it. When um, people have problems in our context, the first professionals they run to uh, uh, are these traditional healers and so on because sometimes they are not even charged a dime. It's free service. Yeah. And so, and they are approachable. The doors are always open. They go to mm-hmm. them. So as professionals, I think that we must rethink and, and begin um, expanding our uh, collaborations w- with them. And, but of course, we have to do so cautiously and, and have some mutual understanding and, and respect for each other. Thank no, you. That, that, that's very wise words and, indeed. And that co- focus on community is so important and the different roles and different um really key people in the community. And if you look, obviously, the world who's intervention um, evidence-based for what works, it's these multi-level interventions which involve key community stakeholders, it's an awful term, but like pastors, clergy people, spiritual leaders, whoever it may be, really important people in the community, that's the sort of stuff is, which is absolutely at the heart of suicide prevention and where we all need to be learning globally from each other. Okay, so just one last one, as I've, as I've sort of given you the heads up already. So, Lai Fong, first to you then. Like, what, what, when you reflect on what you've learned so far in life, and this can be just a general life lesson, what's the most important lesson you've learned in life? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, I think um, is to have that gratitude um, and that awareness that really, truly, I am not alone. And I must, must, must thank my mentor, Professor Emeritus Maniam Tambu, for which if it's not because of him, I wouldn't be here having this conversation with both of you. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I'm not sure whether I'm exactly answering <laughs> the question of, you know, what's the kind of like the biggest well, that's a good lesson that we're not alone. I mean, that's a, that's <laughs> yeah. a pretty good lesson. That's a good lesson they've learned. Yeah. But I just also want to kind of give a, a shout out um, to, you know, where I kind of started a bit of my story about loss um, and post-traumatic growth. Um, I think we haven't had much time and, you know, I, I don't think we have time to talk about postvention. But I think it's, it's kind of like um, impossible to talk about suicide prevention without saying something about postvention and it's in this space. Um, I've heard in international conferences uh, being mentioned that postvention does not exist in Islamic setting. I beg to differ. There's a lot of work going on. Um, we just get we just need to get it out there, share it, make it known and of course you know make it published and be available for international audience. But postvention is very much alive in the Lamy setting. Oh, no, thank you for that. And uh, Lifeong, just to re- reassure you, we've got a, another podcast focused specifically on postvention, but ensuring that international angle is absolutely vital. Okay, so, Ni, final observation for you in terms of your lesson learned. Right, I think I... I uh, mentioned mine earlier when I started with my introductory comments that um, I was quite ambitious at the beginning. Um, in fact, for a long time, I was very ambitious that um, to embark on this journey as a suicidologist, 
I want to take it to the rest of the world. And I noticed at some point that I could not. Only recently to learn that even though I cannot change the world, I can change the entire world of that single person I advance a helping hand to. And it has been a massive, massive message um, for me and in my heart, from my students to research participants to clients. This comes to me every day, sometimes just listening, showing genuine empathy, the kind of the kind of response you get back, sometimes days after, weeks after, the call you get for having just listened, it has changed somebody's life. It has changed the entire family's, you know, life situation and so on. So for me, that's the lesson. We can change an individual's world, even if we cannot change the entire world. And like life on, I also have a simple request. And it has to do with, you know, um, first of all, I, I wish to say a big thank you to EAPS and the other key stakeholders at the international level who are seeking to advance the course of um, suicide prevention in low and middle income countries. But I think that more has to be done, particularly with the journals or various uh, outlets uh, through which we get our research uh, to share with the rest of the world. Um, we, some of us are going through really hard moments in, in, in Africa. I want to be more specific, Sub-Saharan Africa. Now, there are times we submit a paper, the editor will tell, us, will tell you this is good material, it goes through the process and you are required to pay APC. And recently, an experience I had, three of us on the paper, when we even combine our monthly salary, it does not meet 50% of the APC we were giving. You know, <laughs> so I think that more has to be done, particularly in terms of the outlets, because uh, some of us are still collaborating with our colleagues in high income context where they have more advanced research training facilities and so on. And so better research is coming to our context as well. Expertise are getting transferred. But when it comes to the time where we have to share what we've done, then it becomes another big hindrance. And so, yeah, that's my, my, my request. I know it's not a simple one. It will take a while. It's quite political in nature as well. But we are hopeful. We're not giving up. Thank you. No, I think that's... No, I, I share I share your um, concern, and I've had as a journal editor, I've had some discussions on this in this regard recently. But again, it's a complicated story. But I certainly I'm very supportive of us trying to widen access and um, pull down as many barriers for global publishing as possible. So, no th thanks for raising for raising that point. The and obviously your lesson your your lesson learned is a great one because suicide. Prevention is one individual plus another individual plus, as we know, sadly, 700,000 individuals losing their struggle to live. And it's about focusing on those individuals that we will hopefully, hopefully really tackle the scourge of suicide globally. So a huge thanks to both of you, to Lifelong and to Nee for really what was an incredibly wide-ranging conversation. And obviously we covered a lot of ground went a bit longer than we've done in previous podcasts, but I think that really highlights the importance of the topic and the richness of our discussion. So huge thanks for you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rory. It's been a pleasure, me. And of course, 
Thanks, Ias, for this wonderful opportunity. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Rory. It's, it's, it's great. Uh, of course, live on, it's, it's great to have you on this uh, conversation as well. Um, thanks to EAPS. Uh, it's a wonderful opportunity. We hope that um, it, this is a sign of greater things to come uh, as we make progress. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thanks. And, and to those of, you, those of you listening, have a great day. Thank you.